What do Ali G, Video Gaming, and Patrick Swayze from Ghost have to do with teaching regional anesthesia? I'm Amit Power. We feel required to admire those teachers who inspired us to inquire and set our academic interests afire. I'm Jeff Gadsden. And this is Block It Like It's Hot. Hey, Amit. I can't quite believe it. Time is flying. And now we is at episode seven. Hey, Jeff. Hold hold on a minute. Was that your Ali G impression? <laughs> I, well, you is right, my regional brother from another mother. We is currently in Evan recording episode number seven. And me and me, Julie, literally cannot believe it truly. <laughs> Okay. Oh, uh, that was that was amazing. I got no words for that. I, could we consider that like the accent done for the episode now? I, I mean, I think I think maybe we could. It may be safer for us to do that. Although I gotta say, your Scottish accent got some pretty rave reviews in the hip episode. So tell me, tell me, Jeff, how are you doing? How's your time been since we last caught up? I'll see. You. My last week, uh, I had uh, some time at the. I do some time at the aesthetic center every couple of weeks which is kind of cool uh-huh. it's interesting right like you have a different set of priorities for your anesthetic than uh, if you're doing say an emergency laparotomy but mm-hmm. it's interesting being at a place where the goal is to make people beautiful but help me so help me understand this so this is you working in a hospital environment but it's purely i guess the equivalent of what we would be doing in the private sector here in the uk so just cosmetic type work or aesthetic type work it's just cosmetic yeah wow. so it's um, um oh, but the cool the cool thing is that you you can get paid in cosmetic procedures so i, I got my calf implants done there for free you know after doing like 40 <laughs> shifts or something like that so this is a joke right <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a joke yes <laughs> okay. okay i was gonna say you do have some pretty good one, looking calves one can yeah. only one can only hope that that might be an option on the table at some point but uh okay. <laughs> anyway so that's kind of cool it's it's uh it's it makes for a different day it's good it's Got good it. to have variety right like i we do enough super intense trauma call and that sort of thing that this that a day like that sort of balances things out we also had um every couple of months or so we'll do a group journal club between us our group at duke and the group at university of north carolina unc with some of our colleagues over there so we had it at uh at great friend Stuart grant yes. uh, hosted at his house and uh, had some food and drink and uh you know good chance for some cross-pollination between our two fellow groups and faculty and stuff so that was that was a fun night that sounds amazing yeah it's it great like really good fun yeah so how, how about you how how you been well jeff uh, do you remember that story by roald dahl james and the giant peach oh my god do you, okay fun fact about me i'm a huge roald dahl fan what um, who knew yeah, no, no, it's, it's, I, I am, uh, I've read all the books and our kids have read all the books. In fact, we, when each of our kids turned nine, uh, I read to them Danny Champion of the World, which I think is That's amazing. one of my favorites. And it's because it's a really nice story about a father and the kid and the relationship and stuff. So it, it ended up being a, a family tradition for us. Oh, wow. Anyway, so James and the Giant Peach, don't tell me you were kidnapped by giant insects no 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 but but i have actually been in my own large fruit story <laughs> okay okay um yeah I'll, I'll bite what was that so i've been in amit and the big apple 
or I guess more truthfully, the powers in the Big oh, Apple. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the, your, all your social media posts and everything. It looked amazing. Yeah, we just came back from New York City. I've got to tell you, we absolutely love that place. I went with my wife, Kate, and the kids. We kind of did all of the stuff. The kids have been fascinated by New York for some reason since they were very young. Uh, and uh, ever since the, my eldest, Sophia, said she wanted to go and see the Statue of Liberty. Oh, nice. Uh, that's been that's been on her on her checklist. So we did. We did Times Square. We did this Liberty Island. Went to the top of the Rockefeller. I think I probably broke the world record for the most number of photographs of that view and the sunset. Oh, it's amazing. We did Central Park. And, you know, um, we had a very sobering uh, visit to the... 9-11 Museum and Memorial. Right. I was actually in um, in San Francisco on 9-11 back in 2001. And that was, uh, yeah, to, to, to go there and visit with my wife and uh, and with the kids, that was quite something, something that we're yeah. not going to quite uh, forget. But yeah, what, and it was an incredible trip. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, what a city. It sounded like you had an amazing time. And I, I saw some of those those photos. You know, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I've, I've lived there for 12, 12 years. Never been to Liberty Island. I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times, but... It, seeing your pictures from inside the statue was really cool. Well, I tell you, I have to be honest. I, yeah, I told you part of well, the other one of my uh, my New Year's resolutions was to get m- more fit. Holy moly, there were not that many <laughs> steps, but there was the tightest spiral staircase that you had to go to get up to the crown. We went right up to the crown. And I tell you what, for the for two days afterwards, my, I'd got DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness in both my thighs. That was That was... <laughs> It was quite some exercise, but to get right up to the crown, it was nuts. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> no elevators, I guess. No elevators. That's exactly what my youngest asked for. Why is there no <laughs> Where's lift? Where's the lift? <laughs> uh, wait, DOMS. Is that a thing? Yeah, you come on. You must have heard of DOMS. No, well, I, Delayed I understand. Delayed onset muscle soreness. You've never heard of that acronym? I get the concept. Yeah, I've, I've experienced DOMS before, but never, never heard Dude, that phrase. Dude, just stick with me. I, you know, not only do I oh, make up words like symmetrization, I'm going to give you like I'm going to give you some <laughs> new acronyms you've never heard of before. It's <laughs> uh, great. Hey, can you believe the engagement that we've had online about the podcast? Over six thousand downloads now. It's been amazing. Do you know? Uh, I. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. Tell us who, who won the mug competition. Yes. Well, I believe this uh, this particular individual may be somebody that's known uh, known to you. So um, it was a certain anesthetist from New Zealand called Matt Levine. Is it Levine or Levine? Um, Levine, Matt, yeah. Levine. Matt Levine. He was, in fact, he was the second person to answer, but the first person to answer correctly. Um, so I have um, dispatched his mug all the way over to New Zealand, uh, bubble wrapped it, so fingers crossed it gets her in one, <laughs> in one piece. Um, so Matt, let us know. Post us a selfie when you get that mug. Good on you, Matt. Well done. <laughs> oh, Your answer God. was the best. Okay, that was, I guess I could tell that was New Zealand as opposed to Australia because you said your answer was the best. Yeah, best. that's there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get in trouble with these accents at some point. I know, so, we're, we're um, just about okay. We're just about we, okay. <laughs> we, we also have, we had some great questions and interaction online. Um, should we do some shout-outs? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, first, Rahil Mandalia from Leicester in the UK says on Twitter that he is loving the podcast. Thanks, Rahil. Uh, but wished we covered hip fracture in our hip-hop episode mm. as he wanted to know what we were doing differently for sort of intracapsular hemiarthroplasty versus DHS long nail cases. So that's a great point. We, I think we're planning to do a separate hip fracture yes. episode because it's such a big public health problem, right? Absolutely. I think, uh, in fact, I'm talking about hip fractures at Azra Spring uh, coming up very soon. But yeah, I think we, we'll, we'll cover that specific topic later. I think if we get into it now, we'll detract very much from what we want to talk about. But Rahil, we hear you and we will address that. Um, now, we also have Marta 
to Astra Vacaba from the UK and she messaged us via Instagram and she said that she was listening to our episodes um, while she was driving home and she laughing all the way, which I could just imagine that sounds like fun as long as you are focusing on the road, <laughs> Astra. She wants to know a specific question. She wants to know how we follow patients up who have been discharged home with active blocks. So you do a block, they're still functioning, we send them home. Jeff, what do you guys do for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it sort of depends if it's a catheter versus a single shot block, but it, a lot of it is just a safety education and making sure that patient understands the trajectory of the block and when it's mm-hmm. meant to wear off, when we think it'll wear off, what to do when it wears off. But also I have this little spiel about, you know, don't rest your numb arm on the stove when it's, yes. you know, it's hot and you're not going to feel it uh, or anything sharp. Lots of pillows, put your feet up, watch your Netflix and uh, enjoy that block until it wears off. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we um, we actually do have some patient information leaflets, um, which we have an electronic fur version and a paper version. I'm not sure, truthfully, what percentage of people um, get them. And then if they do get them, how many of them read them? Uh, we do do have the very similar um, discussion with you. But actually, in uh, on our day case units, our ambulatory units, actually every patient who had uh, a general anesthetic or a block gets called the next day. Um, by the nursing staff they go through and call up everybody to make sure they're okay and address any concerns yeah uh we also have our friend amina ben yusuf from algeria hey amina hey amina on twitter and she loved uh the breast block episode um thanks amina Uh, but wanted to ask a question about blocks in thoracotomy and the optimal time period for intermittent boluses so uh, do you have any thoughts on that buddy yeah, so it's interesting. So I was trying to work out. So she showed a nice picture of a, of a thoracotomy there, and I was trying to work out what block she was referring to, whether she was talking about uh, a paravertebral block or whether she's talking about fascial plane blocks, because the answer may be slightly different. And my answer is going to be not necessarily reflective of what we do. So at our institution, we don't have the ability to do automated intermittent boluses which i think would be the the perfect uh, recipe as she alludes to so we're stuck with an intraoperative um catheter bolus or loading bolus and then a continuous infusion afterwards but i think the optimal regime would be something like a four hourly or a six hourly intermittent bolus with maybe a low background rate to keep the catheter open what, what are your thoughts on that it's, it's a really good question and something that we have been uh, thinking about, if not struggling with, um, mm. because, you know, we first switched over to an electronic pump that allows us to do an intermittent bolus. Our sort of default position at the time was, well, we've been giving, let's say eight mils an hour continuously. Yeah. That was our previous regimen. So mm. let's just give eight mils an hour, but as a one-time bolus and then repeat that every hour. Oh, so you were doing every hour you're giving an eight mil bolus. Yeah, because okay. it, it just, it just seemed like well, that's the, an equivalent to what we were doing before. Yeah. But what we've realized is that you obviously don't need that. Ropivacaine is what we're using, and it lasts longer than an hour. So you can stretch out that interval to two, three, four, six hours. Some are doing longer, but um, it, there is not a lot of literature on this. So a lot of opportunity for people to do some studies and see what is the optimum interval. And the implication is that if we're sending somebody home with a 500 mil bag, you know, if you stretch your interval out from one to two hours, you've doubled yes. the infusion duration right so that there's a lot of good work to be done there to see what the what the best thing is but certainly we know for from fascial plane blocks there's a lot of cadaveric studies now that have shown just looking at dynamic fluid flow and spread that intermittent boluses seem to open up the space and 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 spread a bit better so totally we need to see more of that in clinical studies right yeah and i think you know interscaling was an example of a block that 
we had been running at, you know, six or eight mils an hour as a continuous uh-huh. infusion. And when we did that with the intermittent bolus, it <laughs> patients were super, super numb, like uncomfortably okay. numb. And they would say, like, I, I need this turned down. So we're, right. you can actually get away with a lot less as an intermittent bolus because to your point, it spreads in the correct way. Okay, Mina, so we, you know, we, we don't have the perfect answer, but it's maybe something that one of our listeners is going to publish and work on and maybe we'll get the answer soon. Hey, all right. So what do our listeners have to look forward to today? Uh, well, you know what, Jeff? We've just received our new regional anesthesia fellows at Guy's and St. Thomas's. So this episode is especially relevant. We're going to talk about how best to teach regional anesthesia and how education regional anesthesia is changing and uh, what resources are available. Um, I, I thought, you know, before we start, I'd love to give a shout out to some of my early teachers in anesthesia. Can I do that? Oh, for sure. Okay, you know, the first hospital I worked at was a hospital called the Medway Maritime Hospital in Kent, and it was actually where I did my first consultant job. And there are two guys I want to particularly single out. One of them is Dr. Graham Sanders. Uh, one of them is Dr. Badry. They were they basically took me under their wings as a baby SHO, my first exposure to anesthesia, and kind of set me on the set me on the right path, I think. Uh, and then when I came to Guys in St. Thomas's, I came across Dr. Emad Aziz. In fact, Dr. Aziz's brother is Eza Aziz, who is the president of the African Society of Regional Anesthesia. So Emad mm. Aziz and Dr. Sanjay Gulati were two two people who kind of really helped shape my regional fellowship and, and guide me in the right direction. In fact, I learned with them as well as them teaching me. We kind of went through that process together. And there's one person who who sadly is no no longer with us, and that's Dr. Geraldine O'Sullivan. Now, Geraldine will have um, is well known for her work uh, in obstetric anesthesia. Right. And in fact, so she's the first person from whom I heard the pepper pot um, phrase. And I'll, I got, I'm going to just very quickly share a story. When I had done a year of anaesthesia at Medway, I'd gone to do a list at St. Thomas's. I moved to St. Thomas's and I was doing a list with Geraldine O'Sullivan. And everyone had told me what an amazing individual she was and how well known she was. And I was really scared. And I, you know, I put my spinal introducer in. And I put the spinal needle through. Right. And I waited and no fluid came out. I was like, oh, gosh. So I pulled the needle back. I did it again, and no fluid came out. So I did this three times, and she looked to me, and I won't do the accent, <laughs> but she said to me, what, what, what are you doing? And I said, I'm waiting for the CSF to come out. And she said, Amit, you're pepper-potting the Dura. You can't see CSF unless you take the introducer out. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> goodness. I forgot to take the introducer out. So, so that's where I, that's how I felt. I was so nervous, I forgot to do that. So that's why I heard pepper-potting. Do you know, I've, I, I had never heard that phrase before until you said that in the ESP episode. And, I, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, an evocative phrase. Right, pepper potting. Completely, but but it's you know, it stuck in my mind since then, and of course I've used it subsequently. And lastly, I've got two other people, Rafa Blanco, who I've mentioned before, and John McDonnell, who were both very instrumental in my early teaching of regional anesthesia. So that's that's me. It's a long list, but I owe them a lot, and I wanted to say thanks. Uh, anyone you want to thank? Thank? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you, you look back at your career and think of people that inspired you, and I think that that you know we'll get to this later but that's that should be the goal right as an educator yeah. you want to inspire somebody so um you know early on as a medical student i went to queen's university in canada for medical school uh-huh. there's a guy there named ted ashbury i've been doing surgical rotations and like just bored to tears right. you know just not my thing and then i did a day with ted ashbury and i came away at the end of that day thinking, i want to be like this guy wow and that has been a consistent thing with some of my my mentors and i think that's that's I think what a lot of us aspire to be, right, to for our mentees is inspire them to be like you. Anyway, he Absolutely. was he he'd pulled out a Swan, Swan Gans catheter, which teach me about physiology and and just he made it really really fun. So 
uh, Vincent Chan for I, when I was in Toronto, uh, obviously yeah, yeah. really inspiring, and he, the, you know, early inspiration of regional anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest influence was Admir Admir Hadzik yeah. when, when I was at, in New York, and he taught taught me so much about how to approach patients and thinking about regional anesthesia and anesthetics in general, and also just how to approach your career and, and that sort of thing. So absolutely, he's a, he's quite an individual, right? Yeah, amazing. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am without Admir. Another inspiration from from New York is a guy named Kevin Sanborn, who was an example of someone who was so tough and his expectations were so high of you that you just, you wanted to impress this guy and you wanted to, you actually you didn't want to impress, you wanted to just not fail in front of him. <laughs> and, uh, but he, he won teacher of the year, like most years in, in that wow. institution. But an example of someone, like you don't have to be a nice guy necessarily to be a teacher and to be well-respected and loved as a teacher. He, he was well-respected and loved, but he was just very exacting in his expectations and made, made you better, made me better. Amazing. I think it's nice when you get a chance to reflect and say thanks. So I'm happy we got a chance to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, this is going to be fun. Let's do this. All right, let's get into it. So I want to start off with a quote from Alexandra K. Trendful that seems very, very relevant. She says, the best teachers are those that tell you where to look, but don't tell you what to see. And that's kind of what I hope happens at the end of the fellowship to our trainees, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I was thinking of this this one as well. Education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Well, listen, why is teaching regional anesthesia well so tricky? Why do you think? I mean, there's lots of components to, to teaching regional anesthesia, but why do you think it's so tricky, Jeff? You know, I think it's there's a lot of elements that go into making a proficient practitioner of regional anesthesia. There's the mm-hmm. anatomical basis, there's the pharmacologic basis, but it's a procedural skill too, right? So you have yeah. to have a lot of things line up to do it well. How about you? What do you think? What's interesting is if I reflect back on um, the comments I've had from previous trainees that have spent some time with me, they feel that learning regional anesthesia in today's world is so time pressured. So the problem is in the UK, we'll have small, limited exposures, maybe one to two month blocks where that's they're on their regional anesthesia block, and they'll come into theatre. And if they don't have a structured programme, they won't necessarily have been told to do the pre-procedural reading. They won't necessarily have been um, known what's on the list. They won't know what 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 blocks are going to get exposed to. They show, show up to the list maybe not as exposed as they should be, and therefore, and when they're doing the list, because we're in a clinical setting. Everything's about time. So they get the patient to sleep or do the block first and everyone's sitting through the window and looking so they feel under pressure. So I think one of the issues is we don't get a chance to spend as much time with our trainees whilst they're doing the block. And if they take too long to do the block, we tend to be quick to take over. And so what I've tried to to impress on on the people I've had the pleasure of teaching is try and communicate with them beforehand and say, look, this is what we're going to be doing. Check out some of the resources, some of which we may be talking about later on in the episode prepare yourself for what you're going to be dealing with so i've taken some of the onus on myself to do that but i think it's difficult because otherwise someone just shows up to a list and they haven't done the preparation beforehand they don't have the time or the or the environment in which to practice and get proficient and many of those people won't necessarily have had a chance to do that practicing needling beforehand so everything they're doing is real time and based upon that accumulated experience it's interesting you you say that because what comes to mind are a couple things. I have a friend, and yeah. I'm not going to say who it is, but if if you show up to his block area and you haven't done the reading and yeah. you don't know exactly what you're doing, he's like, "Thank you very much. 
go away. We'll see you tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. Like it's just, you, you, it's a, it's a covenant, right? Like you, uh, we do our part as teachers, but you got to come prepared mm-hmm. and you got to mm-hmm. know your mm-hmm. patients. Our trainees call us the night before and we'll discuss the cases for the next day's case. And that, but that always includes, like, just like you said, includes a little, all right, great. So we, we agree that interscaling yeah. should be the block we're doing for this case. Watch the interscaling video. That should give you a good basis from what should jump off. So we're not talking about fundamental concepts right in front of the patient. You know, I'm, I'm wondering how much of your ease of, um, of those type of discussions is facilitated by having a nice integrated electronic patient record. <laughs> totally, no doubt. And it, it, I think back to the days when we had paper charts. Yeah. And, and man, you know, I knew what cases I was doing the next day, but I didn't know anything yeah. about the patient because the chart wasn't available. So I had to do it in the pre-op area. I'm flipping through this paper chart, re- trying to read people's yeah, handwriting. Yeah. And then in many cases, struggling through a conversation with someone who doesn't speak English. And we didn't have great translation services at mm-hmm. the time in that place. So I shudder to think of the informed consent that we were sometimes getting but yeah no emr's game changing so now listen so when um let's just imagine for us for a second you've got somebody who's with you for a period of time so let's pick a regional fellow for example so you know you're going to have them for a while let's call him henry henry we got henry again this time henry's not the patient but he's 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 a regional fellow or henry or henrietta so when henry's coming uh to to start off their regional fellowship with you do you tell them where to start off when it comes to consenting patients do you give them any guidance as to what risks to discuss when they're doing the consent process or is it kind of assumed they will have assimilated that information during the training no i think there's a unique set of risks benefits alternatives that need to be expressed mm-hmm. to the patient so I th- that, that's part that's part of the teaching but it's uh, sometimes i think overlooked so i was going to say because do you do you think we should tell because i remember when we used to talk about um epidurals we used to quote a risk of 0.5 percent a risk of postural puncture headache and that was kind of a generic number that was thrown out there and then you'd speak to one of the bosses and said well when was the last time you got one of these and they said well i've done about um 800 spinals or, or epidurals in the last you know three years and i haven't had one so should we be quoting standard risks or should we be quoting uh, individual risks and of course when you're a brand new novice um you can't you don't have a track record so do you think we should be personalizing risks that we're discussing and should we be discussing you know in the uk because of a particular case that happened we now have to discuss every risk that the patient may perceive to be significant irrespective of what the frequency is as opposed to just a frequent risk so um what are your thoughts on that really that's the expectation it's every risk Mm. that's a long discussion any risk that that the patient may perceive to be significant and that's because of this case of montgomery um this is you know a lady who had um, diabetes and she didn't have all of the risks of you know, um, shoulder dissocia, etc. discussed to her. So she decided to go for a vaginal delivery as opposed to having a cesarean section. And as a result, because the small risk of X, Y, and Z happening to her was not discussed beforehand, that changed the whole way that law was perceived in the UK. So actually, because of this Montgomery principle, now we have to discuss anything that the patient may perceive to be significant. Ah, that's that's a tough one. So in theory, in theory, you know, death is, is one of those risks. Sure, I perceive that as significant too. Yeah. But yeah. from a practical point of view, and I, this is ignoring the legal viewpoint that you just outlined, I don't think patients want to hear all that stuff. Yeah. Here's what I say for nerve blocks. I'm advocating that you get a nerve block because here are the benefits that we've seen in the past and we think you could benefit from if you get this. There are there are risks. 
those risks are with any percutaneous procedure, bleeding infection, and then with with a nerve block, yep. there's a risk, a small risk of nerve damage. And I'll stop there and say, do you want to hear more about that? And most of the times, patients will be like, nah, I'm good. I trust you. And I'm okay with that. Um, and there's some people, that, yeah, you know what? Uh, tell me more about the nerve damage bit. And then I'll go into much more detail okay. about that. Do you think, do you provide your patients with any written information beforehand? Or will the risk they have be the only, the first time they hear the risk be that conversation? So most of our patients are seen in a pre-op clinic days right. ahead of time. And they'll be provided with a written consent form for the anesthetic. Oh, how interesting. Which includes, yeah, so it's, it, I've worked in places where the anesthetic consent is implied in the surgical consent, but uh, at, at Duke, we have a separate anesthesia consent. So, And it has the boilerplate language about every possible risk, including, but not limited okay. to, blah, 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 blah. So technically, yes, but I don't, I don't consider that, you know, real information because nobody is reading, considering having a conversation about that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's, it's really, yeah, yeah. practically speaking, it's when I see the patient and have a, have that little that, conversation with them. That's interesting. So we, you know, we focus a lot about teaching and discussing risks. And I think actually when my, uh, when my trainees come and see, speak to me before they speak to the patients, they say, what risk would you like me to discuss? And at that point, I usually, you know, highlight a very similar story to you. Now, listen, what about anatomical knowledge? So before someone comes to do a list, do you think we should get every pay, every trainee? So should we get Henry to draw the anatomy of the block they're going to be doing beforehand? I remember Michael Barrington, originally from Australia, he used to, he used to set up like a, a regional anesthesia assault course. So he'd have his residents come in and they have to go from one station to another like what we call an OSCE in the UK and they'd have to do you know a needling test on one bit and they'd have to label anatomy on a diagram in another section you know should we do that because I don't do that yet I, I do get my fellows to draw the brachial plexus um, as, a, as a little gimmick to see how many of them have actually revised it beforehand but should we make this an integral part of what we do that's interesting so he, you have to demonstrate proficiency at those things before you got to touch a patient interesting yeah, yeah I think I think there's some wisdom there right like I I want a trainee to come to the procedure having a, a good baseline knowledge of the what's, the where's, the why's, and the how's of, of what yeah. we're about to do. But you know, I, I've had people try to draw the brachial plexus before. It's it's a fun it's a fun exercise. You end up with some some interesting versions of it. But I, I think there's probably a limit too as well about how much preparation yeah. because it's a bit. At some point, you just got to get in there and do it. There's only so much yeah. preparation, and me having my hand there available to sort of gently adjust the probe position or guide them through an adjustment or saying, you know, stop needles too far, needles not far enough sort of thing. I think there's so much more value in that than hours and hours and hours of theoretical preparation. So so I think you're right. But the question is, I I guess what I'm alluding to is, should the first time that your trainee has seen that anatomical cross-section that they've generated with ultrasound be on a patient? Because I don't think it's ideal to be telling them what the structures are for the first time on a patient. Have I done that? Of course I have, because sometimes you know you've never met the, the individual before. You've not met Henry before or Henrietta before, and the first time you meet them, or you're on a list, and you say, "Have you done these blocks before?" And they say, "Well, I can't remember." So you end up doing it in real time. But I think it would be great if they could have had some of that exposure beforehand. So the first time they're seeing it is not on a real patient. And and you know, as you're talking about that probe handling, so you know, how much should we have hands on? It's a good question. I think if you do a good job as a teacher initially teaching someone how to hold the probe, how how much mm-hmm. how much you know the P A R T sort yeah. of uh, maneuvers and, and that sort of thing, that's a very good fundamental thing to go through before they actually touch a patient. <laughs> I had another different faculty person I worked with when I was when I was a trainee who had a very personalized approach to this, and and um, 
uh, this person would sort of stand by, right but directly behind you like I'm feeling you touch me with your torso and my torso and oh reach reach me. around and rest their hands on my hands and sort of guide the probe a little bit. Not at all awkward. <laughs> it was like that scene from Ghost where they're doing the As you were saying that, that's pottery. exactly what I was yeah, imagining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend that approach in 2023. No. But actually, there's I know there's a big move along some some of the POCUS point of care ultrasound folks to say that actually you should be able to direct your the person you're teaching to move the probe purely by using voice commands, and not 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 like an automated system, but you know, but but saying you know, I, there, there's a whole, so we used to say you know pressure alignment rotation and tilting, but there's a whole host of different phrases that they're trying to standardise. And I know the folks from Zedu Ultrasound um, are working on this, talking about tail up, tail down, talking about fanning the probe, but it, but it's all about the language that you use. So there's there is an argument every now and then I find that I'm not able to generate the response I want so every now and then I do have to say look I'm going to put my hands on the probe the danger with that of course the moment you do that the person then disengages so it's important to always say I'm going to I'm going to move your hand here okay now I'm letting go you're fully in control so you know that they yeah I I 100% agree with you that philosophy you should be if you're a good teacher you should be able to to direct them verbally through the maneuvers I might be one of the slowest people that i know to jump in there and and take over something because it's important they, they've got to go through that process themselves exactly right? they've got to understand the muscle memory and the movements required yeah yeah exactly not where i work currently but some uh, other places i've seen some poor examples of someone who said okay do this do this put it here i'm gonna put your needle here for you there now inject and like that's not a yeah yeah that's not teaching so you gotta let them get into a little bit of trouble safely yeah right and then get themselves out of it the commonest problem i see so let's assume we've done the consent part that's all okay they've done the setup they've drawn up the drugs they know what drugs to use they've picked the right pharmacological agents they understand the anatomy they generate the image and maybe there's something slightly different from normal and so understanding that there are some normal variants that's quite important but also the commonest problem i find is the needle then goes through into the skin and then we can't find it and then they're trying to think okay well now now what do i do do i move the i need to move the probe to the needle and they try and move the probe to the needle and they see the needle and then the image doesn't look great so that's a quite that's quite a tricky area to 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 navigate so what are your tips for trying to improve that component of of practice i think the question there is when you have that dichotomy between okay i can get the image or the needle but not both in the same frame when do you as the practitioner abandon that take the needle out of the skin get the optimal image and then try again to line things up teaching that decision making is a little challenging sometimes but there's just no to me there's no point in trying to struggle with that fundamentally you have to have a good image of your target if you can see the needle but not the target that's unsafe and it's going to lead to a failed block so i'm quick to say look you've taken the time to put the needle already in the skin but it's not in a good spot so let's just take it out find your best image lock your hand in place and then retry to get that lined up because i find a lot one of the commonest problems i see is people generate so especially if you're doing an awake block right so people generate an image they go great that's great and then they'll get the local anesthetic for skin assuming that they're using local anesthetic for skin and they'll start to put the local anesthetic into the skin and as they're doing that they're not looking at the screen and the image is changing from where it was before and then they go and pick up their block needle and they go to put the needle in the skin and what they're looking at on the screen is completely different from one they're looking at before so i try to get people to make local anesthetic infiltration an active process so generate the image 
Yeah, get everything set up, line up your trajectory, and then use your local anesthetic um, needle insertion as a practice trajectory. So use that to kind of practice which angle you need your needle to go into. And in order to do that, of course, you have to have the right image on the screen as opposed to just something that's not ideal. Yeah. And then when you go to pick up your block needle, again, check the image before you stick your needle yeah. in because people that don't do that I find them and, it, and it's, it's frustrating because you know what's going to happen yeah yeah totally agree and, and I think this brings up the idea of ergonomics right so 100% if you're not comfortable and your arm is in an awkward position that probe is going to slide and, and you'll you'll lose it so I will pull the bed up from the wall I'll change the angle yeah. of the bed in the room so for supraclavicular or interscaling i'll put the patient lateral that's nice so that yeah. you're not fighting with the pillow or the bed to get your needle in from the posterior aspect and that sort of thing so and then the other thing is you know once you get the good image making sure your elbow forearm wrist ulnar part of your hand is resting on the patient or the bed so that yeah. it's not going to slide same absolutely same in fact it's fascinating because despite saying all of this i still occasionally find that I don't stick to that and when we don't stick to that that's when we get into trouble so actually one of our new fellows started recently and I allowed them I said you know do you want me to change the height of the bed and they were like no no it's fine and I allowed that to go and actually what I should have said is no we're going to lift the height of the bed you're going to position yourself appropriately I, I, and I didn't interject and actually because I knew what the answer was but I gave them the choice so actually it's <laughs> difficult because you don't you, you want somebody to go through that process and then yeah. appreciate why you were saying it so actually now that particular individual they've had the experience of like okay right next time I'm going to make sure either I sit down or I bring the table up or I'm going to bring the patient closer to me so a certain you, you mentioned about you've got to make some of those mistakes yourself yep. in a safe manner to kind of find out and I think that there's definitely a truth to that yeah, totally. So we've got the image. Any tips for how to have a trainee appreciate where the needle ought to end up? Yeah, so I think this is difficult. And again, this would be the type of situation where you need to have a discussion before you've got the patient there because you need to say, right, we're going to generate this image and what's the goal of the block? So I used to think back in the old days, and I used to spend a lot of time doing what Admir calls video gaming. I used to try to get a circumferential spread around um, a nerve endpoint or if I looked for the interscaling groove, I'd go between C5 and C6 and then I'd come back and go over C5 and then come back and right. go between C5 and C6. Yeah. So, so that was me not understanding what I needed to do and what was acceptable or sufficient. So I think having that discussion beforehand and say, and then saying to somebody, right, we're aiming to do an interscaling brachial plexus block. You just need to deposit your local anesthetic on one side, periplexus C5, C6, not doing what I used to do in the right. old days. Yeah. And also, some of the newer machines we referred to this before that give you the ability to scribble on the screen. So I have actually used that recently. I've said, right, here's here's the here's the transverse process, here's the pleura, that is where, and X marks the spot, that's where your needle needs to get to. So giving them some guidance to, um, to work out where they need to get the needle. Yeah. And also understanding what's acceptable because we used to aim for or I certainly used to aim for a circumferential spread at one given point yeah so if we saw the median nerve I had to make sure I surrounded the whole median nerve at that point with local but actually what I've learned is if at one side you just got a spread if you then do dynamic scanning after the block you'll find probably you've actually you've actually circled it you know higher up or lower down so it's understanding those nuances of those particular blocks and those endpoints so yeah so a phrase I use a lot is to, to explain this at the beginning of the rotation is all blocks are fascial plane blocks, right? So mm. nerves don't go through muscles generally. Um, they All nerves and plexi exist in a fascial plane. So you don't have to puncture the femoral nerve. You land several centimeters away, just click through yeah. fascia iliaca, and then start to use saline to 
expand that space and then eventually your liquid will get to the nerve and then you can switch to local mm-hmm. anesthetic and then that's been a one of those sort of oh i didn't really understand that i thought i had to get right i thought my needle had to touch the nerve because you see a lot of those initial block videos right with with needles pushing the nerves around because they're literally poking them to get underneath and go around them but actually if you approach the fascial plane just ahead of the nerve and open up that fascial plane that's all you need to do to get into that space but it's getting that understanding that that's acceptable that's sufficient is is a bit that's a challenge our fellows from last year very generously got each of us a laser pointer and that's been Uh, really really uh useful to as you're standing across the bed see this see this see this and so yeah it's been that's been fun (laughs) because just saying over here or over there that's not particularly useful right so they need to have some some focus information yeah okay so listen so we kind of talked a little bit about the various steps but once the block's in it's really important that we get our trainees or henry or henriettas to follow the patients up afterwards right it's the whole post block phase management so because you work in a system where you've got a block room so your trainees and residents won't necessarily be with that patient when they're having surgery right yes and no so there are days when they're just in the block room and just cranking out blocks for other ors in the hospital but then there are days when they do their own blocks and then go and sit in the case and manage the yeah which is super super important because i've heard i've heard that some blocks fail so, you know, so what do you, what do you do in that case? Or, or, you know, fine, the arm is numb, but there's a whole lot more to that managing the anesthetic Completely. than just putting the local in the right spot. That is so true. I remember I did a, a block for a patient many years ago, and I'd, I'd, I'd really, really oversold and really pushed regional anesthesia. This is for hand surgery. And uh, this particular uh, patient was nervous, and I kind of coaxed her through it. And the block went in, and it worked. Uh, and after about five minutes, she burst into tears. And I said, what? oh, my goodness, are you okay? And are you in pain? Is something wrong? And she was like, no, I just didn't realize how numb it was going to be. And it reminded her of somebody she knew that had an amputation. Oh. And she just went into a completely different, and, and you know, you wouldn't necessarily know to predict that or to expect that. So managing the patient through through that was was also was learning for me. But we have to teach people to have, you know, we've got to give people the skills. So you tend to notice that those anesthetists who are obstetric anesthetists or have had a lot of experience or interest in obstetric anesthesia, they tend to do well at regional anesthesia because they are keen and interested to talk to patients mm-hmm. and they're sympathetic and reassuring. So I think those are really important skills yeah. in addition to the hard skills. Yeah, for sure. So getting into this question of competency and proficiency, there are a lot of blocks out there now right yes yeah how many blocks does one need to have done and of which type to be competent and proficient and are there different thresholds for whether you're a regular anesthesiologist or anesthetist versus you know a consultant regionalist at guys and st thomas so this is very it's almost as if we knew this was going to be a topical uh, subject here this is really relevant all right so when i got my certificate of completion of training in anesthesia i signed all of the modules required and regional anesthesia wasn't a specific module i had to get a certain number of blocks at and actually i could have finished my training having done potentially a couple of interscalians a couple of femorals, a couple of popliteal sciatics, and that's it. But not necessarily having demonstrated, you know, a particular competence at it, which was a problem. The new curriculum has got different stages of training, and they have embraced the concept, although not in the in terms the concept of Plan A blocks, where they basically said they've broken it down to into upper limb, lower limb, and chest and abdomen. 
And at various stages of training, they said, right, number one, um, the, the entry level, these guys got to be competent in to do to do a spinal anesthetic independently um, for you know whether it be for obstetrics or whether it be for a hip fracture, for example. And also at that early stage, they said our trainees all need to demonstrate competence in fascia iliaca or femoral nerve blocks. So they've kind of nailed that down. So how do you say what the minimum number is? That's a good question. I don't. We haven't put any numbers in our curriculum. Oh wait, so this is. At a certain stage within training, training. Yeah. they are meant to be, quote-unquote, competent in spinal and fascia iliaca. Yeah. Oh, interesting. For example, so the entry level. Yeah, so, okay. so actually the, the curriculum is beautiful in that they've broken it down into a lot of stages, but it puts the pressure on now because now we need to deliver the training to get people through those hurdles. So the next stage above that, it would be, you know, to be independent in upper limb blocks uh, or to have one lower limb block. I can't remember, I did a talk on this recently, but at every stage, it gives you a level of, of requirements you have to achieve. And the final learning objective is that they have to have independence in upper limb, lower limb and chest and abdominal wall regional anesthesia. So it doesn't say what type of block. It just says you need to be able to provide a block for that area. Interesting. So then, and that's to graduate as a a standard consultant. There is a separate. Uh, we used to call them uh, advanced training modules, and there's a new acronym: an SIA special interest in SIA. Love her. SIA. <laughs> Yes, yeah, see, it is great, but I'm going to be in so much trouble. I can't remember what this this acronym stands for. But anyway, the equivalent of doing a, a fellowship that has a different set of requirements, including okay. continuous catheters, etc. So yes, there. So the short answer to your question is, I think that every anaesthetist, anesthesiologist completing their basic level training should be able to perform a technique reliably for something above the clavicle, something below the clavicle, something for chest and abdomen, and something to cover the lower limb. But I haven't given you numbers because I yeah. don't think I can give you numbers. Well, I don't, and it's interesting, right? Because you, you touched on the idea of the competency-based education, which I think is a, is a great concept. So if I had a time machine to go back in time and I've got Amit Power as a trainee, yes, you might take three axillary blocks to, to get to competency versus someone else who might take 40 tries to get to that speed. Everyone's got a different learning curve. Correct. Rather than just saying, okay, thou shalt perform 40 blocks and then good luck to you sir i think the competency-based approach is much more natural and realistic but you have to have to your point some way of assessing the competency well some way of assessing it but also making sure you can deliver those opportunities for learning right because if you're only doing two months of say a block in regional anesthesia but you don't get exposed to any lower limb surgery then you're not going to achieve achieve sign off of your lower limb blocks and that becomes a problem and then someone's going to say my goodness me i'm not going to get this signed off this year because i haven't done any lower limb lists but at least if they know what their targets are they can make sure they get exposure to those lists in order to do it so i think that's the difference with being a bit more prescriptive so what does it say in the u.s you have to do 40 blocks for example right so yeah you're getting around to the idea of what should a big beginning consultant anesthesiologist look like in 2023 yeah. what should they be able to do because i think the answer is different than it was 20 years ago yes i look at our graduating trainees who are not doing a regional fellowship but are going to a job where they're expected to do some regional anesthesia and what the expectation is and it's it's way different now they're getting jobs where the hospital and or the anesthetic department and or the surgeons are saying i want qls i want esps wow i want rectus sheath I want peng blocks for all the hips and et cetera, et cetera. So the expectation is higher. Very much so. Yeah. And so I think we're way behind the ACGME requirement to be able to graduate from a residency is 
40 spinals, 40 epidurals, and 40 nerve blocks. Now that can be any 40 ankle blocks, Ah. right? So interestingly, there is also a requirement that you be proficient in transesophageal echocardiography. What? Yeah. Yeah. As a resident. So which, which strikes me as a bit odd. I mean, it's, it's cool and everything that you, that that's a, a requirement, but Again, getting back to what is your average consultant anesthesiologist, wow. what are they doing with their day, yeah. five days a week? It, I, my guess is a lot more fascial plane blocks and or nerve blocks, far less TEE or toe, as you would say. Yeah, completely. Unl- I mean, unless you have a, a very specific practice where you're doing a lot of cardiac anesthesiology. or See, that, may, that should be, yeah, especially specific. I think if I was doing a, a U.S. residency or trying to g- gain those equivalent um, exper- exposures in the U.K., I would definitely fall short on the TEE or TOE component because we only really get exposure to that if you're doing cardiac anesthesia now. Yeah, so I think that's made its way in, and that wasn't the case when I was training, but it's it's made its way into the requirement, wow. and yet the... The regional stuff has not changed. Now, a regional anesthesiology and acute pain medicine fellowship is new, relatively new. It's about five years old now in the U.S. officially. Yeah. And so those programmatic requirements, they're a little bit different, as you might expect. So 40 spinals, 20 epidurals. And these are minimums, by the way. So yeah. 100 upper limbs, 100 lower limbs, and then 70 truncles. And the truncle blocks, they say, yeah, 20 abdominal, 20 thoracic, and then 50 catheters. So you know, somebody who's done that, they're, they're going to have a different level of experience now compared to the guys that have done the standard residency. So that seems appropriate. We're talking about two different areas, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's that's a fellowship level graduation target. Now, I would hope that most fellowships provide at least three to four times those numbers because Mm. think about getting back to the number of blocks. I mean, if you look at lower limb blocks, so you've got fasciolaca, you have peng, you have femoral, you have parasacral sciatic, subgluteal sciatic, all the other ones going down the lower limb. Well, if, if there's only 100 blocks expected, that means you're only doing, you know, 15 of each of them. I think for someone to emerge from a fellowship training program as an expert, and the expectation is you're an expert, yeah, you have to have done tons of those, right? I think. Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes me nervous, if I'm looking at your numbers, in the UK, we, you know, in, in a given hospital site, you'll have general trainees, the so trainees that are doing regional anesthesia, doing the minimum competency, and then you'll have the fellows. There'll be a limited number of fellows. If there's a limited number of blocks to go around, how is everyone going to get exposure to them? And that's where I think I'm a little bit nervous about providing those teaching opportunities. And that's maybe where some of those other skills and technology, or maybe some of those other technologies will come into play to make sure people get exposure to those block numbers or at least the process of doing them because what happens if you're working somewhere and on a given day there's only you know three popliteal blocks to be done uh, and if there's a fellow there and the fellow sweeps all three of them up then the the standard trainees don't get a chance to do it so i'm nervous about that it's yeah you can yeah yeah no it's, it's true it's a, it's a conflict that comes up sometimes and the the answer is here you have to defend the core residency trainees first so That's whenever when, when we and our fellowship has expanded over the last um five six years we had three fellows and then we're at four and then now we're at five and each time we expand it we have to make a very, very good case for that expansion, which starts and ends with, is this going to have an impact on the core residency trainees getting their numbers? And if the answer is possible, you know, maybe we'll be fighting for blocks, then that expansion is not going to be approved. Okay. There has to be tons of blocks to go around. And the great thing is in 2023, I mean, we are doing a ton more blocks than we were. Yeah. Yeah. five or 10 years ago. I mean, with the number of abdominal and thoracic fascial plane blocks that we're doing is bananas. So uh, yeah. lots of blocks to go around. 
Dun, dun, dun. Cliffhanger alert. And that marks the end of the first of our three episode series on education and teaching. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll pick up the discussion and share some more thoughts and tips. In the meantime, hit us up on social media if you have any thoughts or questions or concerns. Um, where can they find us? Okay, well, everybody, uh, you guys can find us at Twitter at at blockit underscore hot underscore pod, uh, on YouTube at at blockit like it's hot, uh, and on Instagram. Where, what's the Instagram uh, tag? Jeff? <laughs> yeah, block <laughs> underscore it underscore like underscore it <laughs> underscore hot. And don't forget the hashtag hashtag blockit like it's hot. No apostrophes, and get involved in the conversations. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are enjoying this show. It would be awesome if you could please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps to push the podcast to the top of the algorithm and uh, give other people who who might enjoy it a chance to listen. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for your support so far. So until next time, we hope you all block it like it's hot. hot.